You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My grandfather would defend the fact that he only spoke English by saying that he could drive for 12 hours in the four cardinal directions and not find himself in a place where they weren't speaking English. Little did he know, he was actually speaking French, Spanish, even Danish. And you are, too. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. English is the third most widely used language in the world, behind Mandarin and Spanish, with about one in seven people worldwide able to speak it. There are about 375 million native speakers and about 220 million more people who use it as their second language. It's often used in work and travel, making it the most international language in the world. Like all things, English has changed and developed over time. Though it began as a German language, many words are taken from Latin and French. The grammar is not particularly Germanic, but neither is it like that of the Romance languages. The Romance languages, as you may remember from high school, things like French, Italian, Spanish, and Romanian, come from the far western reaches of the Roman Empire, where people spoke common or vulgar Latin. As the name suggests, the English language began in England. Germanic tribes, the Saxons, the Angles, from which we get the word English, and the Jutes, came to Britain around 440 AD, pushing out the Celtic Britons, or making them speak English instead of their old Celtic languages. Some of those Celtic languages, like Welsh, Irish Gaelic, and Scottish Gaelic, are still clinging on today. The Germanic dialects of the invading tribes became what is now called Old English. Old English did not sound or look much like the English that's spoken today. If a time machine dropped you off back then, and you didn't immediately kill them with disease, you'd be unlikely to understand more than a few words anyone spoke. Many other peoples would come to England at different times, speaking different languages, and these languages added more words to make today's English. Around 800 CE, Danish and Norse pirates, called Vikings, came to the country in establishing the Dane law. Bonus fact real quick, not all Nordic people were Vikings. Technically, not even the Vikings. The word Viking is a verb, to leave one's home for adventure and fortune, and those who did it were Vikingers. The vast majority of the population were farmers and tradespeople, just like in every other country at the time. So English got many Norse loanwords from these northern Germanic languages. I'll dive deep into loanwords shortly, though of course, shortly is how I do everything. When William the Conqueror took over England in 1066, He brought his nobles, who spoke Norman, a language closely related to French. 
English changed a lot from that point because all official documents were written in Norman French. English borrowed many words from Norman at that time and also began to drop word endings that they used to use. This was now Middle English, the period of Geoffrey Chaucer and his Canterbury Tales. If a time machine dropped you off here and they didn't immediately kill you with disease, you'd be able to pick out a few more words that you recognized. English continued to take new words from other languages, mainly from French, as much as 40% of its words, but also Chinese, Hindi, Urdu, Japanese, Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, you name it. Scientists and scholars from different countries and cultures needed to talk to one another, so they named things in the language they all knew, Greek and Latin. Those words were absorbed into everyday English, things like photograph, photo meaning light, and graph meaning picture or writing, a picture made of light. So English is made out of Old English, Danish, Norse, French, and has been changed by Latin, Greek, Chinese, Hindi, Japanese, Dutch, and Spanish, and other languages. Simple. As the vocabulary swelled, English grammar slimmed down and simplified. The classic example is the loss of case in grammar. Case means the role of a noun, adjective, or pronoun in a sentence. In Latin, with its nominative, dative, genitive, etc., this is done by adding suffixes, whereas English just uses context. If you're wondering where Shakespearean English falls in this timeline, that's considered early modern English. Apart from words we don't use anymore, and ones that have completely changed their meaning, early modern English sounded different because of the Great Vowel Shift. This was the gradual change in the pronunciation of long vowels, moving them from the front of the mouth to the back over the course of a century or so. House used to be hoos. One was own. Plead was pled, and so forth. Check out the great Native Lang video linked in the show notes for more. If I forget to put the link in or your listening app doesn't support HTML, Give me a holler on Facebook or Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts or Twitter.com slash brainonfactspod. So if your time machine let you out here, you'd probably get by about as well as you did reading Shakespeare in high school. English doesn't borrow from other languages. English follows other languages down dark alleys, knocks them down, and goes through their pockets looking for loose grammar. Our language sucks up words from other languages like a vacuum. For example, over 1,700 words are shared between English and French. It's the exact same word in both languages. Loan words are adopted from one language and incorporated into another without translation. They simply become part of the lexicon. English has also lent words to other languages, especially in the modern technological era, with things like email, computer, and mobile. But it's not a new phenomenon, and it's not just technology. For example, after Friday, the French enjoy le weekend. The word loan word itself is borrowed from another language. It's a calque, or loan translation. The examples of words in English borrowed from French, German, Spanish, and Italian are numerous. This is hardly surprising due to the close geographical ties that the countries, and therefore the languages, traditionally share. 
But these close relations are by no means the only languages that have contributed words. For example, ski and smorgasbord arrive from Scandinavia. Icon and vodka come from Russia. And avatar, karma, and yoga are Sanskrit words. German has given us words of many types, but food words are probably the largest category. Nachtwurst, liverwurst, noodle, pumpernickel, sauerkraut, pretzel, and lager. There are also sciency type words like feldspar, quartz, and hex. It's even lent us the names of some dogs, not only the obvious dachshund, but also poodle, which I would have laid money was French. A great deal more German words came over during the last century, what with those pesky world wars and all. That's where we got Blitzkrieg, Zeppelin, Strafe, and U-Boat. But also another round of food words like Delicatessen, Hamburger, Frankfurter, and Wiener, Bunt as in cake, Spritz as in cookies, and Strudel. And let's not forget about Kindergarten for the children and Oktoberfest for the adults. Remember, a proper Oktoberfest is always celebrated in September. German had actually been the second most common language in the U.S. for a time. It was so prevalent in some parts of the country that entire city governments operated in and school systems taught exclusively in German. That was prior to World War I. When the war started, official use of German was quickly removed. You have the Dutch to thank for many of the nautical terms you've heard in your lifetime. Avast, buoy, bow, commodore, dock, keel, cruise, reef, skipper, smuggle, tackle, and yacht are all Dutch words. Even words like freight, scoop, leak, scour, splice, and pump. It almost sounds like I'm doing my old words that sound dirty but aren't shtick. If you work with fabric, you may have used duck fabric, made sure that the nap of the cloth was going the right way, and you've certainly had your spool run out at a bad time. The mother tongue of Van Gogh has also given us easel, etching, landscape, and sketch. War pops up yet again in the form of holster, furlough, onslaught, and others. So let's go back to food, where Dutch gave English the words booze, brandy, coleslaw, which I assumed was German, cookie, cranberry, gin, hops, and waffle. The terms Dutch treat, meaning everyone pays for themselves, and Dutch courage, meaning a quick shot of something hard to drink, are not only not lone phrases, they're actually old-timey sarcastic insults. So let's try to stop using them if we can. How much Hindi do you know? A lot more than you think. Let's say you wake up in your bungalow with its chintz curtains, get out of your pajamas and into your dungarees and a fetching bandana, cause you're all about that thug life. Up until you realize you forgot to shampoo your hair 
and no one put away the punch from the party last night. But you're fierce. You're a juggernaut. You hop on your train to the city for your day in the concrete jungle. Speaking to African languages as a broad group, which they are, English has taken the words banana, banjo, chigger, which are nasty little tick-like things, goober, what they used to call peanuts, gorilla, gumbo, jazz, jitterbug, juke, as in box, and that's a K, it's not a jute box, voodoo, yam, and zombie. Lumping another vast and diverse group of people's languages into one paragraph are the loan words from North American natives. There are hundreds, or even thousands, of place names that use the original word of the people who were driven out of them. Ottawa, Toronto, Saskatchewan, which boasts a town called Moose Jaw, no joke, and the names of more than half of the states in the U.S., including Michigan, Texas, Nebraska, and Illinois, which I had thought was French. The city of Detroit is French, though. It means the Narrows. Native language also gave us food words like avocado, chocolate, squash, pecan, or pecan, potato, tomato, chili, and cannibal. Sort of. You heard about that in this year's Halloween episode, Cannibal, the podcast. There are also animal names like chipmunk, woodchuck, possum, moose, and skunk, as well as canoe, toboggan, moccasin, hammock, hurricane, tobacco, and the turtles known as terrapins. A brief aside for one word in particular, squaw. Some of you may have cringed when you heard it. Oh no, you say to yourself, Moxie doesn't know that squaw is a slur, like calling a Roma person a gypsy. It's not really true, though. Now, first and foremost, regardless of what a word is, where it came from, or what it meant originally, if you're using that word as an insult, it's an insult. And there are those who use the word squaw to demean Native American women. Now, that aside, People believe that squaw is inherently insulting because it comes from the Mohawk ojisqua, a vulgar word for the female genitalia. This is highly unlikely, since in the Algonquin language family, the languages of the tribes that Europeans interacted with before the Mohawk, squaw simply means woman or young woman in certain dialects. It is in no way pejorative and was even used in missionary translations of the Bible. It can be seen in this context in writings dating back to the 1600s. There's a push by some to reclaim the word and remove the stigma. As one Abenaki woman writes, When our languages are perceived as dirty words, we and our grandchildren are in grave danger of losing our self-respect. The full article that was taken from will be on the website if you'd like to read more. Speaking of people speaking up for what they believe, but not really, I just needed a segue. Let's go back to the reviews. We got one from Murderific, who says, My brain is full now. If you like learning new facts on the go, this podcast is for you. 
Moxie has a lovely speaking voice, and you can also tell that she is super into her info. I learned a lot in her Banned Books episode, and it makes me want to run out and read some of the books that have been banned through the ages. Side note, I also learned that there is a picture of side boob in one of the Where's Waldo books. Keep it up, Moxie. I love it. Oh, and I love you, Murderific. And yes, there is side boob in a Where's Waldo book. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Today's episode makes me excited for two reasons. First, the topic was voted on by our patrons at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. All patrons, regardless of contribution level, get to vote on an episode topic once a month. Secondly, I get to talk about Yiddish. I freaking love Yiddish. You should use as many Yiddish words as you possibly can, and you're probably using more than you think. Let's start the explanation of what Yiddish is by telling you what it is not. Yiddish is not Hebrew. Though they are both historically used by Jews, they are not the same language. They do share an alphabet, that contains no capital letters and is read from right to left, though. The reason the two are often linked in people's minds is that Yiddish speakers usually learn to read Hebrew in childhood, since holy texts and prayers were written in classical Hebrew. But that form of Hebrew is very different from the modern Hebrew spoken today in Israel, which few Yiddish speakers would be able to understand. Linguistically, Yiddish and Hebrew are as different from one another as Japanese is from Chinese. Yiddish is, however, quite similar to German, which makes sense since both are Germanic languages. The word Yiddish is the Yiddish word for Jewish, so it would be technically correct to refer to someone speaking Yiddish as speaking Jewish. 
but the average person is likely to misinterpret that, so probably better not to. You can think of Yiddish as the international language of the Ashkenazi Jews of Eastern Europe, who typically spoke it in addition to the dominant language of their area. It's generally believed that Yiddish became a language of its own sometime between 900 and 1100 CE, but it was primarily a spoken language rather than a written one. At its height less than a century ago, Yiddish was understood by an estimated 11 million of the world's 18 million Jews. Now, due largely to World War II, three times more people speak Hebrew than Yiddish. Less than a quarter million people in the United States speak Yiddish, about half of them living in Texas. Just kidding, it's New York. Where else was it going to be? In recent years, Yiddish has experienced a resurgence and is now being taught at universities, and there are Yiddish studies departments at Columbia and Oxford, among others. Yiddish is referred to as a mamalashen, a mother tongue. It isn't entirely clear whether this term is one of affection or derision. The mamalashen was the language of women and children, as opposed to the lashen koidish, the holy tongue of Hebrew studied exclusively by men. Unlike English, Yiddish is a gendered language, and the gender of the noun alters other words around it. For example, the word for the changes to der Yingel when talking about a boy who is masculine, die Mama, the mother, feminine, das Kind, the child, which is neutral. Plurals also change the definite article, as in die Kinder, the children. Where English generally sticks with s or es to make plurals, Yiddish uses n or en as in schulen and nudeln, er as in kinder or hazer, s and es as in fishers and zedas, ekh as in stettler, and im as in kvarium. Did you need all that minutia? No. Did I include it because I wanted to speak more Yiddish? Absolutely. Now let's get to the Yiddish you're speaking without even knowing it. It's nearly December when this episode comes out, so I'll quote a line from near the end of the Bill Murray classic, Scrooged. The Jews have a great word, schmuck. I was a schmuck. Now, I'm not a schmuck. Schmuck is a word for the male member, as is putz, schwanz, and schlong. You use one of those to stup. If you think I'm being too bold, you might give me a slap on the tukus. What can I say? I've got a lot of chutzpah. And it kills me to hear people say it chutzpah. Oy vey. When you see the ch, give it the ch. Mazel tov. Now you sound like a real mensch. We should go out for a drink and a nosh. Maybe a bagel and a schmear. Can you pay, though? I'm flat broke this week. I got bubkiss. Oh, and can we drive? The coffee shop is a bit of a schlep. I mean, it's nice. I had a meeting there when I was trying to schmooze a new client. I go through my whole spiel. I'm super nervous because he's not reacting. And I'm thinking, I'm such a yutz. I said the wrong thing. Finally, he says, yeah, I like your shtick. I could have plotzed. I don't think I could work at a coffee shop, though. I'd be spilling drinks all over people. I'm such a klutz. Plus, you hear those coffee mavens talking about this one's Indonesian, this one's Sumatra. It all tastes like burnt water to me. 
Oh, come here, Bubbola. You have a little schmutz on your face. There you go. Can we swing through a gift shop or something? I need to get a little tchotchke for my booby. Not too expensive, but, you know, nothing too schlocky. It's for her 90th birthday. She likes schmaltzy things like Hummel figures and big-eyed kid paintings. Though that Meshuggah cat of hers likes to go through her mishmash of figurines and knock them off the mantle one by one. And he looks at you while he's doing it, the nudnik. It's not kosher. And like a schnook, Bubby just buys more stuff for him to break. I'd give him such a spritz. There are more, of course. A yenta is a gossipy woman, particularly an old one. Softig means an appealingly plump figure. I couldn't work that into the story, unfortunately. Glitch is also Yiddish, though it originally meant a slip-up. Ah, it would have been geschmack if I had gotten them all in. There are a lot of schlemiels, schvendricks, and schlubs in the world, but you know where you won't find one? In the exalted ranks of our Patreon patrons. So big thanks to Charlie, Council of Geeks, Michael K., Nathan, Adam Baum, and Seth for helping to keep the show running. Every donation is appreciated. And if you don't feel like you want to commit to an ongoing donation, I don't mind that at all. What, I'm going to get picky? You will also soon find a PayPal donate button on the website yourbrainonfacts.com. If we can reach $50 a month, that will cover all of my out-of-pocket expenses in producing the podcast. Another bonus fact before we leave the Yiddishkeit, the intro to the classic TV show Laverne and Shirley begins Schlemiel, Schlemazel, Hasenthefer Incorporated. Schlemazel means a quarrel or a fight. Hasenthefer isn't Yiddish. It's a type of German stew, usually rabbit. I'm going to break out one of my favorite jokes. A rabbi walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The barman says, where did you get that? The parrot says, Brooklyn, there are hundreds of them. If you've been binging your brain on facts, first of all, welcome and thanks for listening. Secondly, you'll notice an incidental, accidental theme when I announce the next topic. Polari. Now, Polari isn't technically a language. It's a cant a cryptolect, also sometimes called an anti-language. It's a system of slang based on the speaker's native language used only by a select group. For gay men in Britain before 1967, Polari wasn't just cute jargon like Pig Latin. It was absolutely necessary. Being gay, or even being perceived as gay, could land you in prison. In fact, gay culture was so repressed that newspapers would barely even report on gay people who were arrested for gross indecency. It was taboo to write or even speak the words gay or homosexual. Gay people needed a way to communicate about their relationships and the other aspects of their lives without being understood by eavesdroppers. Polari came about as a form of insider slang built from many different languages shifting and changing as it evolved. Language professor Paul Baker summed Polari up in his 2002 book, Polari, The Lost Language of Gay Men. It was a lingo of fast put-downs, ironic self-parody, and theatrical exaggeration. Is there any wonder I love it? 
Although Polari saw the height of its popularity in the mid-20th century, its roots are much older. A similar argot called Parliari was spoken in markets and fairgrounds at least as early as the 18th century, made up partly of Romani words, with selections from thieves' slang and backslang, words that are spelled and spoken backwards, such as yob for boy and ria for hair. As its use spread, it picked up pieces of French, Yiddish, Italian, Shelta, the language of the Irish travelers, London slang, and Cockney rhyming slang, among others. Let me divert for a second to explain Cockney rhyming slang. That's the slang of the working class of London that didn't just replace one word with a different word, but with an entire phrase, then shortened that phrase. For example, the word for telephone is dog. The first step is to rhyme something with telephone, which was the phrase dog and bone. Telephone became dog and bone. But that's a bit wordy, so two-thirds of it was dropped. Likewise, feet became plates through the phrase plates of meat, and stairs became apples through apples and pears. There's actually an ATM somewhere in the East End where one of the language options is Cockney rhyming slang. Also incorporated into Polari by way of the theater was the broken Italian used by street puppeteers who put on Punch and Judy shows. Examples of punch talk recorded as early as the 1850s include manjari for food, bivari for drink, and lenti for bed. Even the name Polari itself is an anglicization of an Italian word, parlare, to speak. The lexical mishmash that was parliari was used on the streets of England, as well as fairgrounds, circuses, fish markets, and the British Merchant Navy. Polari isn't especially easy to research. Language is fluid and ever-changing to begin with, and a system of slang used for protection and rarely written down, even more so. There's no definitive glossary, and there are a wide variety of spellings. Even the name itself is spelled in a dozen different ways. So take anything you read or hear about Polari with a grain of salt, including this podcast. To complicate things further, some say there are actually two separate mutations of Polari within London. The East End version, which involves more Cockney rhyming slang, and the simplified West End version. Although there was a lot of overlap between the two, it's said that folks in the East End interacted with dock workers and sailors who added words from foreign languages, and the West Enders relied more heavily on theater slang. In addition to being useful for discussing intimate business, Polari could also be used to determine if someone else was gay. You just drop a few words into a conversation to see if they pick up what you're putting down. If not, no harm done. As such, the Polari vocabulary evolved to include a large number of racy terms so that people could talk about hooking up without blowing their cover. Trade is a gay sex partner. TBH stands for to be had, which describes that that person is sexually available, what we call today DTF. In Polari, an omi is a man and a woman is a dona or a poloni. An omi poloni, therefore, is an effeminate man, or sometimes just a gay one. If you flip it around, a poloni omi is a lesbian. 
It wasn't until the 1960s that Polari started to become more widely known, thanks in large part to the BBC radio comedy Round the Horn, which you heard about in episode 42, Panto to Python, The History of British Comedy. The characters Julian and Sandy peppered their scripts with Polari. Round the Horn was unusual in that it was a program on a mainstream station with two main characters who were more or less out of the closet, in a time and place where it was illegal to be out of the closet. After several years on the air, many of Julian and Sandy's terms made their way into everyday speech in the UK, such as Vada, to see or to look, and Bona, for good. One term in particular, NAF, meaning bad, has proven to have real staying power. I suspect the average person who uses it doesn't realize it was an acronym for not available for fornication. Round the Horn blew the secret by taking the language mainstream. At the same time, homosexuality was decriminalized, quickly negating and deflating the use of Polari. In his book, Baker writes that many gay men under the age of 30 have never heard of it. Arguably, the best-known Polari word is drag, referring to women's clothing when worn by men, possibly stemming from a Romani word for skirt. Where there's drag, someone is going to zhuzh something up. That's Polari as well. An effeminate gay man is a bit camp, and he may mince when he walks. A masculine man, or masculine anything for that matter, is butch. Does he have a nice bod? That's Polari, too. Here are a few example phrases to help you pick up your Polari. Can I trawl around your lally? Means can I have a look around your house? It's a fun crowd, but naff handbag. It's a fun crowd, but bad money. Can't you zhuzh that nanti shaikwa, love? Can't you fix that bad wig? And the best well-known Polari sentence of all, How bona to varda your dolly old eek. How good to see your dear old face. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. In February 2017, a trainee priest of the Church of England thought a great way of preserving Polari would be to conduct a church service in it. It was not well received. Old Testament sayings like, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Was translated to, Rend your thump in chest and not your frocks, and turn unto the Duchess your Gloria, for she is bona and merciful. And in place of the traditional, Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the prayer was offered as, Fabinous to the Auntie, to the Omi Chavi, and to the Fabulosa Fairy. It went over about as well as you'd expect. A spokesperson for the Church of England said, I fully recognize that the contents of the service are at variance with the doctrine and teachings of the Church of England, and that is hugely regrettable. And I have spoken at length to those involved in organizing the service to ensure this will never happen again. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And thanks for putting up with breathiness or hoarseness you may have heard in this episode. I am receiving treatment for my asthma. The doctor just changed my medication. It takes about a month to take effect. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? 
then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.